Hello, hello everyone and welcome back to the Chronically Healing Podcast. My name is Jesse Fritz and I am your host over here on the show. Just a little introduction for myself real quick because I haven't done one in a while and if you're new to the podcast, again, my name is Jesse. I live with Hashimoto's, which is a chronic illness um, associated with the thyroid. So I started this podcast as a way to amplify those voices within the chronic illness community to share our stories, share our triumphs, share um, you know the the low times that we go through as well as the high times, and then also share different modalities and ways that you can enhance your life while living with chronic conditions. As I continue to change the podcast and make it a little bit more all-encompassing that you'll see things like spirituality, astrology, everything that I can think of that will just continue to help us chronically heal over here, both in a chronic illness space, but in a spirituality space, in just a overarching, let's make our lives better space. So I hope that you are along for the ride, but today's episode is an amazing episode. I'm so excited for you guys to listen in. Today I interviewed Talia Mealy. So Talia and I met via Instagram, I believe, and she reached out to be on the podcast and I was so excited to get to speak with her because we were going to speak about her life living with fibromyalgia, which we definitely did. We talked about that throughout this episode. We talked about how to learn to become your own advocate and invest in yourself while living with invisible illness. We talked about Talia's story growing up with fibromyalgia, and then we actually talked a lot about racism and implicit bias, explicit bias, um, and Talia's story living as a biracial and bicultural Latina woman, also living with chronic illness. So it was such an interesting conversation for me with all of the conversations going on around Black Lives Matter and everybody waking up to the systemic racism that is just happening in this country. And it was so interesting to talk to Talia and to understand her perspective And she was even able to helpfully correct me on a few things that I didn't even realize were my own privilege. And it was such a great conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to listen in. So I'm going to stop blabbing so that you guys can go on over and listen in. But if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Chronically Healing podcast. I put out episodes every week over here, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to today's show with Talia. So let's jump right in. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Chronically Healing Podcast. Today, I'm welcoming another Chicago resident, Talia. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you today. We have so many different things that we want to talk about, but to get started, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and, yeah, just a little bit about you. All right. Well, I am a person with fibromyalgia, and I have primary fibromyalgia as opposed to secondary. So meaning that my primary diagnosis is fibromyalgia and it's not a result or a symptom of another illness, um, which is really common in people who have juvenile fibromyalgia, which is what I had. Hmm. Um, I had it for sure from the time I was 15, but most likely it was earlier than that. Um, as we look back at different 
experiences that happened were all kind of like, oh yeah, that was definitely sooner. Can I ask um, one question quick on yeah. Is it, why did, is, did they call it juvenile fibromyalgia because you, it started when you were a child or? Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it's more common, from my understanding, it's more common that it's a primary diagnosis if Got you've it. had it first as a child, that you don't necessarily develop as a symptom of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that and I, um, it, you know, it was obviously not as bad as it is now. So I was able to get through school and, um, went into college and my, you know, what I now know are flares were much further apart and not as significant. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it sort of started to develop more into college, into grad school after that. Um, and just sort of, I don't want to say spiraled, but it developed and changed mm. along those years. Um, so in that time, I went to school um, for social work and became a social worker. And um, when I was in grad school, I was in my very last semester of grad school and my symptoms spiraled out of control. Um, and I actually had to sit down with my mentor um, and he and the head of the program just convinced me to gift myself the, the, the gift of putting my health first. Mm. And I actually left the program, um, a few units short of my master's degree, but it's one of the best things I ever did for myself. Um, and I moved home and I had a family there and I had my now husband. And, um, so from there I ended up going into culinary school. <laughs> so it kind of <laughs> went all over the place. Yeah. And, yeah. um, that that was an awesome experience and it was the first time I really took advantage of accommodations for people with disabilities. Okay. Um, so it was a great experience to learn how to do that for myself. Yeah. What is that? What does that even mean? Just like with school? Right. So I think, um, I did, I did get a few accommodations in undergrad and graduate school. Um, right. as far as, you know, I, I got a, like a parking placard, um, this is all in California. So I had a California state parking placard and uh, my mentor was sort of like, you're a social work student. You tell your clients to use their resources and, you know, <laughs> not have shame and all of that. And you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he walked me to the office and we spoke with somebody and um, I got like a special parking pass so that I could park closer, basically in faculty parking. So I could park closer to my um, classes and I was allowed to do a lot of stuff. Um, we didn't really have like online classes very much then because this is like in the early 2000s, but I was able to um, find different ways of getting the course information if I had to miss school, um, you know, for my internships, if I needed to sit down, I was allowed to and just little things that add up but mm-hmm. don't necessarily have an impact on the level of education I was able to get. Mm-hmm. And in culinary school, it was the same thing. You know, if I needed to sit down, if I needed to ask help to lift something really heavy, mm-hmm. there was no repercussion for it, um, which in culinary school, it's sort of like a very physical education that you're getting. Um, but it actually worked out really well, and I was never singled out. I wasn't treated any differently. Everybody just sort of accepted it. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you do your work, nobody really cares after a while. I think we are more self-conscious about the accommodations than other people are. Yeah. So what you had mentioned that your symptoms in the beginning had, they kind of changed throughout. What were some of your symptoms just for people that are listening that maybe don't know anything about this? 
Sure. Um, so when I was a lot younger, a lot of the symptoms had to do with um, always being cold. I grew up in Southern California um, in Santa Barbara, so at the beach all the time, and you know, it never really got colder than the 50s, and that was in the winter at night. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it didn't matter during the summer. I was still freezing. We'd be at the beach, and I'd be shivering. Um, there's this idea of um, hyperacusis, which is a sensitivity to sounds and stimulus and stuff like that. And so I definitely had that where, um, you know, if the neighbor was mowing the lawn, I, my anxiety would be through the roof. Oh, wow. Um, things like that, these, these, which now we know are reactions to our nerves working overtime and, and amplifying messages to our brain. Mm -hmm. Um, so stuff like that, it was things, even the feel of the sand at the beach was like nails on a chalkboard to me. Oh, wow. So lots of, of just overactive responses to things that mm -hmm. everybody else didn't have. And I, mm -hmm. you know, it was sort of, well, she's dramatic, you know, mm -hmm. or she's sensitive. Um, and then as I got into high school is when I started having like the pain. Um, and the, you know, that's when we started going through all the MRIs and x-rays and, you know, all the different tests that I'm sure we've all been through. Mm -hmm. Um. I think when it comes to pain is usually when parents are sort of like, oh, okay, we need to take this seriously. Yeah. Um, and that was the case for me. Yeah. So what kind of what happened after your journey with college? What, what continued with how you were feeling? How did that, how did your mm -hmm. illness kind of continue to affect your life in maybe good and bad ways? Well, it, it, like I said, it changed. And so I started getting symptoms I hadn't really had before okay. or had symptoms that I had and didn't know that that's what it was, uh, like the brain fog. I always thought, well, I'm tired. I'm going to school. I'm working. I have an internship. Of course, mm -hmm. anyone would be tired. Yeah. But then I would look and see that my friends weren't as tired as I was. You know, they could party all night and go to work the next day and I would be down for two days. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was more of it changing in a more significant, dramatic way, all the symptoms just were amplified. So I couldn't ignore them anymore. And it made me finally really want some sort of treatment. Like I mm -hmm. just couldn't cope on my own anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so after grad school, um, I was diagnosed formally in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, there really wasn't any, I couldn't even pronounce it. Nobody really knew what it was. Um, there weren't any, Instagram wasn't even around yet. I don't think mm -hmm. like there wasn't a community. Yeah. And the only community I had was, uh, my doctor sent me to a fibromyalgia support group and I showed up and I was the only person under 60. Oh my. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, they all knew each other and I left there feeling like my life was over. Mm. Um, a lot of them had 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 been on opiates for years because there was no other way to treat it. Mm. Um, but the majority of them didn't actually develop the illness until they were grandparents. Mm. And so they'd already had a whole life without symptoms and careers and families and vacations without having to worry about symptoms and things like that. Um, so I just didn't, it didn't, I didn't relate to what they were going through, but my understanding was that that's my life now. Mm. Um, 
so that was a sense of community that I had then. And I, it took me a long time to sort of put it aside and just, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start from a, a blank. I'm going to start from scratch and I'm just going to build what this illness is for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point forward, I just tried to take it as it came. Um, you know, I would take breaks from trying to find treatment. You know, I would go hard for six months and then I would take three months off of no doctor's appointments, you know, keep with the meds, but not try to put myself through that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just sort of became this routine of waxing and waning of, you know, okay, I'm going to go hard at it. I'm going to take a break. Um, but always on a path going, moving forward, trying to find either a diagnosis or a better way to live with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the long, a long road to say the least to, to get to where I feel like I am now, which is at a place of acceptance of, of the fact that this is never going to stop moving. It's mm-hmm. going to constantly be changing and evolving. Yeah. Right before we, or I started, um, recording, we were kind of talking about this just in general of like the kind of taking it day by day and like learning that, just waking up one day and kind of, okay, this is what we have today. This is how we're going to move forward. So that's kind of like where you're at now, right? Right. And I, I actually worked in as a drug treatment counselor for a while for an all women's program. Mm-hmm. And those women really instilled in me the idea of taking it a day at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was in my early twenties when I was doing that. And this concept of not having a plan as a planner just really just, it, it drove me up a wall and it took these women who took the time out of their own treatments and their own programs to stop and say like, you need to follow our lead Mm -hmm. and just wake up in the morning, deal with what's in front of you. You can't deal with what's going to happen tomorrow yet, you know? Mm -hmm. And that is something I carried with me forward without even realizing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like I kind of like, maybe washed away what they were saying to me. I sort of brushed it off. Um, but a lot of it really did get in and affect the way that I, I moved forward, um, in sort of letting go of control, which Mm. is really hard. (laughs) So hard. (laughs) Again, second that for sure. I want to make sure too. So Talia and I have been talking, we had talked face to face a couple months ago, and then we've kind of been chatting via Instagram and email since, um, since our world has kind of changed and um, the focus of things have changed as well with George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter protests and movement and the everything that's coming from that. And one thing that one big part of your story that we haven't touched on is the fact that you are Latina, correct? Mm -hmm. And so you, when we were emailing and correct me, this is totally a conversation I've never had before. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but you had mentioned that being a biracial Latina and racism has affected you and obviously has then affected your illness. And then, um, and so I'm interested to hear that, side of your story as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, I am, I'm biracial and bicultural in the sense that my mom came here as an immigrant, um, Mm -hmm. and didn't speak English, you know, just sort of the typical story. Um, and my dad is Italian American. And so I, you know, there's lots of biracial people in this country who really don't even identify that way. And a big part of it is the bicultural aspect, which is why, 
typically why a kid stands out is because their parent is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, yeah, I dealt with a lot of... Oh, can I interrupt you really quick? Sure. Just because I don't understand. So the difference between biracial and bicultural is the fact that your your mom came here, correct? Correct. So she, I wasn't, I had a lot of friends who were biracial. However, yeah. both of their parents were born and raised here. Got it. And maybe generations before, you know, uh, I had a lot of friends who, who were half white, half Mexican, but their Mexican parent had been here, you know, their fourth generation American. Oh, okay. And so with my mom not knowing the culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she would send me to school with lunches that were embarrassing, you know, and she didn't know, she didn't know what American food was, you know, it had to be, had to be dad approved finally, Mm. um, to know that I wasn't going to get teased at school. Um, her accent, Mm. um, you know, she is not Mexican, she's Guatemalan. And so in California, there's not a, well, my part of California in LA, there's a lot of Guatemalans, but in Santa Barbara, there aren't. Mm -hmm. So being called a watermelon, you know, things like that, you know, kids are just relentless. Um, but it was a lot of um, trying to figure out how to navigate just life in being different. But I'm what I call, I call myself an undercover Latina because I'm light skinned and I can pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I can pass as white. And so I had to learn how to change the way that I presented according to whomever I was sitting in front of. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with, with an invisible illness is Mm -hmm. you're constantly worried about making the person in front of you comfortable Mm -hmm. instead of making them, you know, squirm because, you know, oh, I don't feel good today. A lot of people don't want to hear that, Mm -hmm. especially when you look just like they do, you know, you, you're, you're put together, you present well. And that is the same struggle that I dealt with, with being, you know, biracial is, when I was with Latina people, I really had to like Latina friends. I had to try to, you know, show my Latina card Mm. and prove that I was part of that club because I don't look it. Mm. Um, but then when I was with white people, I had to really play it down, make sure I pronounced certain words the way they did, not the Mm. way my mom did. Um, I had a, I made a horrible mistake in high school and decided I wanted to be blonde. (laughs) <laughs> and that didn't work out too well. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's really a very similar experience. And all of the things that have been happening around the country with George Floyd and, um, I mean, all of the killings recently, yeah. is, it's been very triggering for the biracial community because we're stuck in between the two worlds that seem to be going at each other. Mm. In the sense that, um, you know, particular people who are biracial, half black, half white, they're being pulled in both directions right now. Yeah. Um, And it it ultimately ends up that however you present to the world, so however the world sees you, if if they see you as black or they see you as white or or Latina, whatever, um, typically that's the way you're expected to go. Mm. Um, And that's a lot of pressure for biracial people. And so this whole experience has been... um, like I said, just really triggering and brought up a lot of emotional, um, like just stuff from when we were kids and things like that. And I've talked to a lot of people recently and it was sort of like, Oh, you're, you're feeling that way too. You know, again, not giving ourselves permission to feel what's going on. Mm -hmm. For some reason, as you were talking, it reminded me of the thought my therapist has brought this up to me actually of, um, like being a chameleon. 
Like you have to morph yourself into whatever someone expects you to be or what it's safe for you to be or whatever. And even just what you said quickly, the fact that you were embarrassed of your lunch. Mm -hmm. I I was never embarrassed of my lunch. The only (laughs) thing that made me mad was my mom wouldn't buy me those cool like Lunchables, you know, that everybody else got. Oh, snap pack. (laughs) Yeah, I never got those. That was what I was embarrassed of. But to just not even think about like having to change yourself for different people. And and that does totally tie into chronic illness too. Like, or the amount of people that feel that they have to um, just tell people that they're fine. Or right. because they know that who they're talking to either doesn't care or isn't going to believe them anyway. So why even get into the conversation? Why take the risk? And I think I think what you're talking about also is just another ism. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, you know, racism, but there's that idea of ableism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the conversation is definitely starting to shift in the right direction as far as, you know, changing the idea of what a disability looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think, you know, having to cater to somebody else, um, it never ends well for the person doing the catering. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also entails having to take a huge risk and be vulnerable yeah. and yeah. we're already vulnerable to the world. Um, and so I understand why people don't do it. I absolutely, I mean, I didn't do it for years. It wasn't until, about 2013 that I finally started telling people that I was sick Mm. um, and accepting it. And honestly, my life has been incredibly better since then. Mm. Um, You lose people who just don't want to deal with it, but then the people who are still around or the people who come into your life after that point, um, there's no price. You can't put a price on that. It's just, it's, it's life changing. Yeah. To have that true community that's there for right. you. So one other thing too that you mentioned in, I think it was actually in your Medium post that you sent mm-hmm. me, was the fact that um, when it came to being biracial and Latina, it wasn't, it was so much more noticeable that people called out your differences in America versus when you were in other countries that you said that it wasn't so it wasn't like nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody, you know, it just, they didn't care. It didn't matter if you were white or Latina, it, they didn't care. And I, I thought that was so interesting to me. It was something that I had really thought about. Um, I mean, over the years as I've traveled with my husband, um, you know, it's sort of, kind of brushed through my mind and then I would let it go. And this last year we went down to Guatemala, um, to see family and my mom was with us and, you know, she looks like a little Mayan woman, very dark, short, you know, the whole features, everything. And so obviously when I'm with her, you know, she gives me street cred and it's obvious that I'm a Guatemalan. Mm -hmm. Um, but when we split up, um, so she went somewhere and my husband and I went just to cruise around town and, um, you know, speaking Spanish to people and I'm not hundred percent fluent, but the Spanish that I know is, a, we speak Castilian Spanish, which is more like Spain Spanish, mm. um, as opposed to like a more like a Mexican version of it. Mm-hmm. And so that aspect, it sort of grounded me to the community and nobody questioned. It mm. was as if just by the way I spoke, they knew I was one of them. Um, it didn't matter that I was light skinned. It didn't matter, you know, that I was wearing 
very American clothes. Um, and so it was, I was trying not to make a big deal of it, but every time we would leave a store or a restaurant or something, I would just, you know, be glowing because it was this, it's this constant worry of, of people judging you, mm-hmm. of, of having preconceived notions about you and therefore not giving you a fair shot or assuming that you're going to be the stereotypical American and talk down to them or, you know, something like that. Um, and the same when we were in Spain is I was, you know, I remember we were at a spice shop and we were having this long conversation with this woman who spent time in California. And so she asked which country I was from, not knowing, well, we're talking about California because I'm from California. Mm-hmm. Um, because in Spain, you've got every shade of the rainbow out there, but mm-hmm. they're all Spaniards. So it doesn't, you know, but when you come to the U.S., I've noticed, um, I guess it's since I was a kid, that there's a need to categorize. Mm-hmm. And then we self-sort even within those categories. So the Latino community self-sorts, not only by shade, but by which country you're from, um, how you know indigenous your roots are, as opposed to part of the you know colonization of each country. So there is this need to compartmentalize in this country, which is ironic considering we're supposed to be the melting pot. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, an, it's, it's not a surprise then that there would be, you know, discrepancies um, when it comes to the way that people are treated by the police mm. or by any sort of authority. Yeah. Yeah. If we're doing that just in general as people, it may, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense as to why that's happening inside the police force and other areas as well. It, it, it's when it, it's the perfect, this whole thing is a perfect example of when implicit bias becomes explicit. Mm. Um, and, you know, the idea of implicit bias, we all have it, all of us. There is nobody who, you know, for example, when people say, I don't see color, that's mm-hmm. not the goal. Yeah. The goal is not to not see color. The goal is to see color and enjoy it, accept it, um, celebrate it. And, you know, when we can get to that point, then maybe implicit bias will be gone. I don't know. Um, but right now we're seeing this, this, you know, turning point of, I think in the last four years in particular, that things that were um, latent all of a sudden are now free to be out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that these things coming to a head was inevitable. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up that example because I've said that in my life. I've said I don't see color when I, especially when I was younger, um, I grew up in like a super sheltered, tiny, very white, um, (laughs) town in like Northern Wisconsin. I didn't see anyone, like if I saw anyone that was a different color than me, it was a little bit tanner white person. So I never, yeah, I like, yeah. Or red, I like, (laughs) (laughs) about it. And like, I, you know, I, slowly opened my myself up to the rest of the world and I didn't want to have the same mindset as everybody had in the town that I grew up in and in my way what I thought was right when I was younger was believing like I don't see color like I see everyone exactly the same like and then I so I think that was one of the there were many learnings for me in the last few weeks but that was one of the learnings for me is like even with my podcast like I've had um, people of different ethnicities on the podcast. I've had people all over the world on the podcast. But if you just look at it quickly, 
for the most mm-hmm. part, it looks like I've had a lot of white women on my podcast. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was something I was like, you know, for me, I was like, I didn't even think about it, but it was something now I'm learning, oh, that's something I need to think about. These are things that we can pull into these conversations. Even if I am focused on chronic illness, there's so much that you can pull in on that as well. So it's just, there's so much to learn for everyone (laughs) about everything that's going on. Right. I think what you're speaking to is the idea that, um, diversity is not just representation through, you know, the visuals. I can see that you have people of, of different ethnicities. Diversity is, is not only having them, but acknowledging how that may have, you know, for example, if you are a black woman and you present with a chronic illness to the hospital, you are going to be much less, you're, you're going to be taken seriously you are not going to be yeah. taken as seriously as a, a as a white woman, and yeah. on top of that, um, treatment for pain in particular, mm-hmm. women of color are treated for pain at a significantly lower rate than for white women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a connotation that if you're a person of color, you have a higher pain threshold, or you're drug seeking, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I said, I think what you're speaking to is the idea of um, you know, colorblindness is having people on of all different ethnicities. Um, but color acceptance is learning about how their dif- our differences affect a shared experience of being ill. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's 100, 100% it. And it's, I, I love, I don't love what's happening, but I love that this, these conversations are being brought forward right. because I thought that I was, you know, being an ally and I was being as helpful as I thought I, I knew how to, but now I'm just like learning all these new ways that, that I could. And at first I took it very personal. I felt so mm. bad. I just felt like a bad person because right. I wasn't doing all these things. And, and once I got past making it about me <laughs> and like <laughs> once I got past that and I was like, Oh wait, no, this is like a great learning opportunity. Granted that was a little bit of perfectionism in there too, but like, this is a great learning opportunity for me to learn how to be better and how to like amplify people's voices and, and share sides of chronic illness that I didn't even think, like, I didn't know that people, um, that didn't have the same pain management systems when they went into the doctor, they didn't believe them the same way. Like I would not know that, like, because I've never experienced that. So it's, it's so interesting to like continue that conversation. I'm wondering, like, too, on that, did you or your mom ever receive racism? I'm sure you did in in normal life, but in, like, the chronic illness space at all? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I did experience um, a good amount of racism. Mm -hmm. Um, They were sort of just anecdotes to my life for a long time. And when I got older and I started bringing them up to my mom, it was, who's also, she's a therapist. And so Mm. it's like, let's talk about this. Um, (laughs) You know, it was sort of taking a step back and understanding that these things are not just anecdotes. They affected my life moving forward. Um, There, you know, for example, uh, my tiny little beach town, uh, we had um, a little group of skinheads who had a huge problem with my dad marrying someone of color. And um, they tagged our house with swastikas in the middle of the night with spray paint. Oh my gosh. And, you know, as a kid, it was sort of, 
the, the scary part was not the swastikas because I didn't understand what they were. Mm-hmm. The scary part was seeing your parents afraid. Yeah. Um, and that look in my parents' eyes, I, the, the first time I saw that again after that was when I started to get sick. Mm-hmm. And it was the same look in their eyes. And as an adult now, I can sort of pull back and see it was an existential threat to them, both mm-hmm. things. Their daughter being sick and, you know, essentially a threat to their family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, these are, that, that's a very explicit example. Yeah. The more implicit examples uh, were, you know, the place I grew up, a lot of people have heard of Montecito. Um, it's like one of the wealthiest places in the, in the country. And that's where I went to school. And, um, you know, I would have wealthy women come up and yell at me for letting my nanny kiss me and hug me. And it was my mom and they didn't realize that she wasn't the hired help. She was my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the time my mom was sort of like, ah, they don't know. Just, you know, just, just ignore it. Um, and obviously that was her effort to not make me feel even more different from everyone else. Mm-hmm. But as I got older again, it was sort of like, why are people telling us our story? Yeah. Um, and with my illness, it was the same thing. Like yeah. the idea of being gaslighted is parallel in both racism and chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them, both of the experiences have taught me that I need to be the one to tell my story. Mm-hmm. and to stop people right in their tracks when they start to narrate for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's taken a lot of, of hard work, and it takes a lot of finesse sometimes mm-hmm. um, because you will offend people mm-hmm. no matter how nicely you say things. Um, so I learned a lot from both of them. Um, they had very similar um, effects on my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes into a little bit of, well, it goes into like learning how best to be an advocate for yourself in, in all areas of your life. Um, but, but what was that journey like for you? I'm always interested in like, we kind of have touched on it throughout, but like just Mm -hmm. learning to become your own advocate when it comes to your life as a human, when it comes to having chronic illness, being able to stand up for yourself. And like you said, being able to, to do it. I don't want to say like, sometimes you don't need to do it nicely, but like being able to (laughs) like, just being able to learn how to be an advocate. I'm going to keep going on. And that's basically my question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if you allow cussing on your podcast, but (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes you just need to tell people to fuck off. Yep. Um, there really is no other substitute for that sometimes. Yes. Um, but obviously you're not going to teach anybody anything by doing that. So yeah. it's, but, it, but we, just like people of color, people with chronic illnesses cannot always be expected to make everyone else comfortable. It's not fair. Yes. And it's not always our job to educate other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something you hear from people of color. You know, it's not my job to teach you. You know, yeah. you got to figure it out. It's the same thing with chronic illness. Um, but I think as far as advocating for myself, I really learned to do what I would have told my clients, mm. um, to sort of practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. And a big thing is, first of all, I'm really, truly believing in every cell of my body. I'm not crazy. This is not all in my head. I'm not mm. going to add on gaslighting myself. Um, but also just, you know, speaking up and speaking the truth 
and, you know, being respectful, but firm, you know, that when people try to sort of doctors will lead you in a direction, well, this is what you're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if it is great, if it isn't, you know, really speaking up in a way that shows that you have command over your treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, another really big thing is to know your rights. And that's really important as a person with a disability because you're talking about everything from accommodations from universities to your job to um, your housing rights. Um, you know, I recently posted on my Instagram about the fact that if you have a prescribed emotional support animal, so if you have anxiety or you have an illness where you're home alone a lot and the depression um, can seep in, that if a physician prescribes you an emotional support animal, an apartment, a house, they can't charge you a deposit. They can't charge you extra pet rent. Um, things like this that we don't even know are available to us. Yeah. Um, it's really important to know, to know your rights and what you have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also just making sure that you are the captain of your team. Mm-hmm. And that took me so long to understand. And I think working at a hospital as a social worker really helped to sort of drill that point in um, that your doctor and you and your phys- and your uh, pharmacist, everybody, it's a team and you're the team captain. The doctor is not the boss. Yeah. They work for you ultimately. But in order for that idea to that concept to work, you have to do your part, which means reading the research you know, keeping a journal, taking notes when they talk to you, being prepared, not just sort of going on a whim to your appointment. Um, If you put in the work, they will put in the work too. That's been my experience without an exception is if I show up and I'm serious, then they're serious too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think advocating for ourselves is really just investing in ourselves. And unfortunately, sometimes that looks like work. It is work. Um, but just realizing that we can gift that to ourselves, that we are worth putting in the effort to take control of our situation as much as we can in a, in a, in a situation where there is no control with a chronic illness, um, that's something we can control. Yeah. And I think too, like, like you said, getting to the point of understanding that you're the captain of that team, you're the driver of that car. Right. Um, I think it's really important to take the time to find a doctor that understands that. And I think for so long, I didn't think that those types of doctors existed until I started, like you said, I started advocating for myself and I started saying, no, I don't agree with this. Why do you want me to do this? What will this help with? Asking questions. And when, like for me, I have a wonderful naturopath and she you know, at any time she'll be like, Hey, I think you should try this. And I'm like, why? And she never takes it personally. She's very much like, these are these things. And, and I'll tell her this makes me a little bit uncomfortable and then she'll change it. Or for example, for me, I have a lot of issues with restrictive diets, which are a lot of times one of the first things that they do <laughs> for you right. with a chronic illness is put you on a restrictive diet to see what's affecting. And for me, I have a background of like, disordered eating when it comes to restriction and just extreme dieting and binge eating. So for, she knows that. So she, she's like, how can we slowly do this? What are some things that we can do? And, and I think I've had so many people reach out to me asking me about doctors and how to find a doctor. And a lot of people just 
there are doctors out there. There are so many doctors, so many practitioners out there, coaches out there who will help you in that way. And if you, if that is not your doctor now, find a new doctor, you have that power and it's so cute. Yes. And I agree. And, and I've had the, the privilege to do that as well. And I think this is something that sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, that the option to do that is a privilege. Mm. And there are so many people on Medicare and yeah. on Medicaid and, um, you know, don't, the way that insurance has gone the last few years, there's two yeah. doctors as an option. Yeah. And so I think I completely agree. Yeah. But when that's not an option, I think making the most of what you have means sort of almost coming up with a plan on your own and getting them on board. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I know at least like for my insurance, like naturopaths aren't covered. Mm-hmm. And so the out-of-pocket cost would be prohibitive. Yeah. Um, and so I've had to sort of make do with the neurologist that I have or, you know, the, you know, my primary care is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, although it would be ideal, I, I don't want people to limit themselves if this is who, you know, if, if the rheumatologist or the, you know, I don't know, immunologist or whomever that they have, immunologist, I don't know where that one came from, <laughs> um, too much COVID thinking, um, but whomever they have if they're not serving them well and you don't have another option, then you take the reins Mm. and you come up with a plan and you do your research and you show up and you make them tell you why this plan won't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they can't, then you figure out, you demand, they help you implement it. Um, So I think, you know, finding a way to work with what you have. And I think that's just the social worker in me yeah. is you have very little to work with. Let's make the best out of it. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of us have naturally kind of built that skill out of necessity. Mm-hmm. No, that, that 100% makes sense. I didn't even, I didn't think about it, but it's, it's so true. Cause even, um, we're moving out of state here soon. So I won't be able to work with my naturopath anymore. And she's like this unicorn who like works for a <laughs> chiropractor. So technically the like prescriptions and stuff go through him, which is why she's, nice. she's like a unicorn naturopath. Um, but yeah, it, it truly, it is. That's actually, um, I think I get so fired up about advocacy and like understanding that like no one else has control over that person for you. But also, yes, understanding that like who, who you can work with and being able to still advocate for yourself in that, in that situation and stand up for yourself and, and, you know, tell that the, you're paying them. So tell them what you need, explain to them that something isn't working for you and, and working within your boundaries that you may have, um, can still totally work 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are nothing if we are not resourceful as people with chronic illnesses. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. That is so true. (laughs) So one of my other questions that I had written down was, um, about learning how to be proud of yourself. I think this is something that you and I had talked about forever, but like, how do you, when you're, you know, you're living with chronic illness, you're living with something that you just feel awful every day and you can be in this state of victimhood and it's so hard to get out of. And then 
And then when people come on my podcast or whatever, and they're like, yeah, I, I love my body. I'm proud of my body. A lot of people are like, what? Hey, what? <laughs> yeah. so like, how, how has that been for you? And do you have any like tips or things that you can talk to about that? Well, I think I got a head start in it in the sense that my mom is deaf. And mm. so I learned from a young age uh, that it really has no bearing on whether or not her life can be as amazing as if she wasn't deaf. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, she had to do some things differently. Mm -hmm. You know, like the idea that everyone's wearing masks right now has been a challenge to say the least. Oh yeah. Um, so, but she's found ways around it. And you know, you, again, you become very resourceful. So I do, I have noticed that I've sort of shocked people when I've started to say that I am grateful to my illness. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be the person that I am today without it. Mm -hmm. Um, when, even before I had a diagnosis, when my symptoms were getting bad and I was working as a social worker, the level of empathy that I was able to have with my clients, um, especially when I was working in mental health, like different things like that, um, you know, dealing with the outside judgment, um, it really gave me a sense of pride that I wasn't going from what my, my textbooks were teaching me on how to, you know, advise these people to go forward. I was speaking without projection um, from my own experiences. Um, and when they would tell me their experiences, I could relate so that when I, when we came together to create a plan of some sort, um, you know, I came from a place of knowing whether or not something would actually work, you know, a way to make ourselves more visible. Um, I don't know if this is making any sense, but um, <laughs> yeah, the depth of empathy really meant a lot to me. And it also showed me that, um, I think women in general are stronger than we realize. Yeah. And when you have a chronic illness, um, you know, everyday tasks are so much more difficult. And a lot of that came, became apparent to me when I would hear other people complain and I would think, you know, they're complaining. I got that done too. Yeah. on top of being ill. Um, and I would feel a sense of pride yeah. in my ability to accomplish something. And I think we need to be very clear about the fact that not being able to work does not mean you're worthless. Mm. You, know, you, you are surviving every day. And something I do want to really, you know, make sure is clear and be, be sure to mention is that people with fibromyalgia um, have a much higher rate of suicide Mm. and then the general population. And that's something that we need to work on. Um, the idea that we are not worthless. We are not a burden. Yeah. You know, we have things to offer this world, even if it's just being around for your family. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you don't have kids, you know, you have aunts and uncles, people who would, who, who want you there and you have something to contribute to their lives. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a big part of me you know, finding pride in being ill is everybody's struggling in life in general, but a lot of them aren't struggling with also having an illness. And that's something that I'm really proud of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's so true. And finding, finding anything to be proud of in yourself or to just feel accomplished. I think that especially as women, but even just you know, personality types that tend to have chronic illness, all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, we tend to hold ourselves to this level that isn't even like, isn't even <laughs> workable for 
a quote unquote normal human. And then we have, you know, brain fog and pain and depression and all these things on top of that. And and for some, I, I remember one of my first podcasts was with a friend of mine who has chronic migraines and I'm talking like a couple times a week migraines and can't get out of bed. And she is still, you know, she works every day on finding something that she's proud of. I'm proud that I stretched this morning and I'm proud that I slept on the couch all day because that's what my body needed. And, and that was so enlightening to me, especially just starting this podcast, because I definitely deal with extreme body image issues and things that come with, with having Hashimoto's and, and just to listen to someone who's in extreme chronic pain all the time, um, still be able to find things that she was proud of about her body and about her journey and knowing that, that there's just, there's, there's a future for her knowing that there's a future, even when she's in the depths of her pain was so enlightening and empowering to me, um, to be able to like really grasp onto something that you're proud of or that you're grateful for. And again, like I said, it can be the fact that you laid on the couch all day and took care of yourself. That is something for yourself. Exactly. And I don't think people really realize that having a chronic illness is a series of mini traumas. Mm-hmm. And so when you put it all together, it's a trauma, it's a traumatic experience. And that's why I, you know, advocate wholeheartedly for talk therapy um, mm-hmm. yeah. and dealing with that series of traumas and, and okay, so it's maybe not what the average person would call a trauma. Mm-hmm but it is technically a series of mini traumas that need to be dealt with accordingly. And again, it's about gifting these things to ourselves. We are worthy of dealing with it and, and understanding that, um, you know, we've survived all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, and that in and of itself is reason to go on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of hesitation because there has been a past culture of saying, these illnesses are all in your head. Yes. And therefore, if you go to a therapist, they're going to tell you, you know, you're crazy mm-hmm. and it's not real. And that really is not the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not my experience and it's not the experience of a lot of people I've spoken with. And it sounds like it's not your experience either. No, I've, I've chatted about talk therapy quite a bit on here and it has been so powerful. And actually what you're, what you're speaking to the whole trauma, even for me, one of the, um, I had, a, basically my husband got sick a couple of years ago. I had always been the sick one. <laughs> I had always been the one that, you know, that dealt with things and kind of mm-hmm. lived my life being chronically ill. And mm-hmm. then my husband got sick and he reacted in an entirely different way than me. And I mm-hmm. didn't know what to do. And I also was mad at him because I felt like, you know, I like, um, like I handled it better than he did. And there's just all these things yeah. that happened when all of a sudden I was triggered by someone else close to me having a chronic illness. Anyway, I just say all of that because going to therapy, I actually have individual therapy and we go to couples therapy and Wonderful. realizing that trauma isn't just these 
horrific things that happen to people, you know, murder, rape, those kinds of multiple other things that people assume is the only type of trauma. Like, no, I went through a trauma watching someone that I loved almost die and not knowing how to handle that. And, and then also like the traumas of, of living with a chronic illness, living with Mm -hmm. chronic pain, living with chronic, um, just ways of life. And, and I think that was a huge part for me in talk therapy and just understanding what trauma was and allowing myself to understand that I went through traumatic things um, was it opened up so much healing just mentally um, for me. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I could talk about, we could do a whole other (laughs) podcast episode (laughs) on therapy. I think that it's so important, especially for those of you with chronic illness, just even just to talk to someone and have them validate you and how you're feeling and what's going on for you and that you're allowed to feel the way that you feel and that doesn't make you less of a person like I I love it so much to speak to somebody who you don't have to worry about their eyes glazing over when you're talking about your illness exactly um, yeah I, I couldn't agree more and I think um, you know those traumas color the way that we move forward in treating ourselves and and the allowances we make for ourselves and so addressing those traumas can move us closer to acceptance as we go through the process of grief, because we do grieve as we get ill. Um, and nobody can be expected to do that a hundred percent on their own. And mm-hmm. there it doesn't make you weak because you need, you know, help or you want help. You deserve help. You yeah. shouldn't have to carry that burden on your own. And a therapist can help alleviate some of that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I 100% agree. Are there, this is a question I like to ask everyone, but I feel like it fits here. Are, are there any, um, other things, self-care, things that you do for yourself that you really, on the daily or on the weekly, that just make you feel your best, mentally, physically, anything like that? Yeah. Um, so I do, I know I have to schedule in the mornings, mm-hmm. you know, after say 2, 3 p.m., I'm like, I'm just done. I'm not, I can't make much sense of anything. And so I know that I need to do everything that's important earlier in the day. And that's taken me a long time to accept. Um, I plan like three easy dinners Mm. a week on the nights that I have to dry my hair (laughs) because (laughs) it takes too much. The shower, the drying my hair and cooking, it takes so much out of me. So I sort of plan around that. Um, but my, my like guilty ritual is like trashy TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Real Housewives. I love like Vanderpump Rules. Like I love all that kind of stuff. Um, and I used to be so embarrassed about it, um, you know, but it's sort of my version of a glass of wine at the end of the day Yeah. Um, where I can just zone out and there's nothing really serious happening. There's nothing about the world and the state we're in and all of that. It's just it's just a good way to zone out and, and I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's, I need to start watching trashy TV again because my <laughs> obsession are these like murder mystery <laughs> things. So I'm like, they're so interesting, but then I go to bed and I'm like terrified. <laughs> yes, that'll do it. That'll do it every time. I'm actually not surprised. Let's, let's add trauma on top of trauma. <laughs> right. It seems like a great idea. I mean, I tell myself it's okay because they're like, 
there's like um they're comedians i don't know i don't even know how to explain it but i try to tell myself it's okay and it's not at the end of the night every night i'm like that's not working for me but i can guarantee you that none of the housewives will give you nightmares <laughs> yes that's perfect or a different type of nightmare but yeah exactly <laughs> So uh, for everybody that's listening, what is a way or a few ways that they could get in contact with you or follow you on Instagram or yeah, just get to reach out to you if they'd like to. Sure. Um, so my Instagram handle is just my name, Talia Mealy, and it's T-A-L-I-A-M as in Mark, I-E-L-E. And this is the same for my website. It's taliamealy.com. And so people can reach out if they have questions. I'm always willing to help people through situations. Again, it's just the social worker in me. Mm -hmm. Um, So feel free to reach out. And I, on my Instagram, I feature a lot of um, healthy food that I do. Um, I don't follow any fad diets. I don't believe in any of that. And none of them have been proven to help fibromyalgia. Um, So it's really just well-rounded foods and, um, sort of my experience moving through the world and, and trying to exist well now in a pandemic, but just in general with a chronic illness. Yeah. Perfect. I will have all of your links and everything in the show notes and in the blog posts for anybody that just can click it as well. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners of the podcast today? Um, I just want to make sure that people really, um, allow for themselves the idea of having a great life while being ill, that, that they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and that, you know, like I said before, you are not a burden, you have something to offer the world and we are all anxious to see it and hear it. And it doesn't have to be some gigantic, you know, a podcast, for example, which is Mm -hmm. amazingly affecting other people. Um, it can just be, sending a random message to somebody on Instagram to tell them like, Hey, I see you're struggling. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, we can all affect each other and the best place to start, you know, affecting change is within our own community and things like Instagram, all of that is a great way for us to reach out and connect with other people who are, you know, also struggling with chronic illness. And the best way to feel good about yourself in my experience is to be of of service to others. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. I love that. That's such a wonderful message to to end on here for everybody. So make sure that you go and check out Talia. And thank you so much for being on the show today. It was such a wonderful conversation. Yeah.